If you enjoyed these podcasts, check out Byron Reese's newest book. It's about artificial intelligence and covers all the topics addressed on Voices in AI. It's called The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity. And it's available now wherever fine books are sold. Welcome to the 100th episode of Voices in AI. In my capacity as the publisher of GigaOM, I've had occasion to interview Stephen Wolfram twice before. Once was back in 2015, and then again last year, 2018, Stephen appeared on an earlier episode of Voices in AI. In those two interviews, we covered a great deal of ground, and I thought long and hard about what to discuss this time around. Much of Stephen's work is quite practical, such as with Mathematica and Wolfram Alpha. But he also spends much time up in the intellectual stratosphere where fundamental questions of reality are explored. He is arguably our generation's best bet to figuring it all out, finding the fundamental nature of reality and what makes the universe tick. It is these topics I wanted to explore. In addition, much of his thinking ends up being almost religious in nature. His views of physics border on philosophy and even religion. So I was eager to explore his thinking here. So this interview is a bit unorthodox, but then again, so is he. So sit back and enjoy. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Thanks. So do you believe in God? Oh, that's an interesting question. I'm not a, I'm not a, uh, I'm certainly not an adherent of any sort of organized religion. However, it's an interesting question. I mean, I, the things that I've done in science tend to intersect in strange ways with things that people have studied in theology for a long time. I mean, for example, it used to be the case back in the day there was this thing that used to be called the argument by design, although that subsequently got a different meaning. But it was a question of, you know, look at the universe. The universe could be completely without laws, but actually that's not what we see. We see a universe that's full of definite laws and rules and isn't, isn't as complicated as it could conceivably be. And people said, okay, that very fact is a proof of the existence of God. And I guess that since I'm in the business and I happen to be actively starting to work on this again, of trying to find the fundamental theory of physics and believing that that fundamental theory has at least a chance to be simple, then at least by the standards of the early, you know, Christian theologians or something, you know, I have to be sort of following the argument by design. And, you know, in, insofar as I believe that there's a simple rule for the universe, then their version of an evidence for sort of uh, uh, something, um, uh, the, you know, the, their, their argument would, I, I would have to say that I subscribe to. I think, uh, when was it? It was visiting some country, maybe it was, it was uh, maybe India, where they put in the, on the visa application, they insist that you fill in, you know, religion. And I was going to put their animist. My children said, don't do that. It'll just cause trouble. But um, uh, why would I do that? Well, you know, one of the things that, um, uh, is um, uh, a consequence of a bunch of science that I've done is this question of what has a mind? What's, what things that exist 
can be thought of as mind-like, like our brains, you know, we attribute minds to. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's sort of the, 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 some version of this is statements like, you know, the weather has a mind of its own. And the surprising thing that came out of a bunch of science that I did is that, um, in fact, there's this sort of principle of computational equivalence that says that in many ways, what the weather does is just as mind-like as what brains do. And that's kind of the, uh, uh, that's kind of the concept of things like you know, the animistic religions is this idea that you know, there's, there's spirits in everything, so to speak. And so this, this notion, you know, does the universe have, um, uh, you know, is the universe kind of mind-like? Um, this scientific result you know, this principle of computational equivalence kind of uh, implies that. So I, you know, following through on that, I kind of have to say at some level that I would be, should be considered by some classification as an animist, so to speak. Given what you know about physics and the principle of computational equivalence, is there any method by which um, the human could survive the death of their body, like in a, in a practical way? You know, okay, what's a soul, right? That's, that's kind of what you're asking. What is, what is the, you know, is there a soul? What might the soul be like? Um, you know, I think we have the experience with computers now to at least imagine what souls might be, so to speak. I mean, there's a, uh, okay, sort of thought experiment you might do. I've, I've, I've imagined, I was going to years ago, I, and I may finally, when I get, um, totally old and unable to do other things actually follow up on this, but I was going to write some sort of pseudo-fiction book about kind of interviews with famous scientists and thinkers of old, so to speak, kind of imagining the, you know, person goes from today's world, you know, bringing their laptop and goes to visit, you know, Pythagoras or something. And then the question is, what does, you know, you have that conversation with Pythagoras, what does Pythagoras think the laptop is? so to speak. And, you know, the, the obvious thing is like, it's a bunch of disembodied human souls. And you start peeling that back and you say, well, no, it's not. I mean, it's just a piece of electronics. And it's like, well, who created what that electronics does? Well, it's a bunch of people. Well, who, who made it, you know, who made that software work that way? Well, it's the ideas of some particular person. And so I, I guess it's a, you know, there's a question of what the, what the distinction is between the sort of the output at the level of, you know, software we write, words we write, whatever, things we record about our lives, and the actual, you know, internal state of brains. I mean, so, so for example, one thing I've wondered about, you know, I've recorded lots of stuff about my life, you know, millions of emails, uh, lots, of, lots of other things. And so I wonder, is there enough information about me to reconstruct a bot of me by this point? In other words, you know, my, my brain has some number of synapses, some amount of memory in it. And, you know, if you were to just take its output over the last 30 years or so and say, um, okay, can we now reverse engineer, you know, what's inside this brain? Uh, I, I don't know what the answer to that is. I don't know if it's possible, but I don't think it's obviously far from, in, far from possible. And, you know, th there will come a point at which you can perfectly reasonably have something where it's a... Uh, you know, where, where you should be able to get a bot of me that will respond in more or less the same way that I'm responding in this conversation to you. And then we have to ask ourselves, you know, is that, 
Is that me? Is that something different from me? And I think that's that's the point at which we have to sort of start start wondering about you know is that is the bot is the bot of me the soul of me so to speak or not? Um, and uh, uh, you know and and what um, uh, you know I th I think um, and there's sort of a question of whether you can sort of do it with reverse engineering or whether you have to like take a brain and you know dissect it and pull out you know all the uh, the data that's stored at each synapse, or or some other thing like this. Um, but so I think my answer is that the uh, you know I I really don't doubt that the soul in in this sort of informational sense of a person. I think the thing we've learnt from the whole sort of computational experience is that it's extremely really certain. That eventually that will be preservable digitally and independent of the biological manifestation of of uh, of you know of the human. I, you and I have had a conversation before, and I've probably never really expressed my question clearly enough. But I always come back to it when I think about it, and it goes like this: You know, people who say they believe something, like uh, they believe um, in treating everybody nicely, but then you see them mean to people and you say, ha ha, you don't really believe that. Or, you know, all kinds of things where people say they think one thing, but their actions sure imply they think something else. And when that happens, we tend to think whatever they do really is what they believe. And when I talk to you and you talk about the weather has a mind of its own and a, a, and a storm cloud and a hurricane and the brain are the same. And then when I try to talk about consciousness, you get, you get kind of dismissive and say, that's just a word. And that, and when then you say things like it's all just computation, everything in the world is like simple rules iterated over and over. And all of this very impersonal non you know, it's just a bunch of cranking numbers. The whole universe is just that. And if we could see it well enough, that's what, what we would just see is just a bunch of numbers. And yet, I know you to be like an emotional and compassionate person who loves things and doesn't like other things. And, and, and I see, you know, all kinds of, you know, ethics. You have an ethical code and a moral framework and, and all of this stuff. And so I have to look at it and say that does not logically flow out of what Stephen says he believes. And so I can only really infer that you don't actually believe it. Like it's a good model for understanding certain things, but it isn't actually your core belief because it's so, because you could imagine somebody who lived consistently with that view of the world and really said, well, nothing matters. You know, a, a storm dissipating and a child dying are just the same thing, but you don't think that. So I, I posit, you don't actually believe it. Like it's a convenient way to think of the universe, but it isn't actually what you believe. It's an interesting topic, right? So, you know, it's like, I like chocolate. It gives me a good experience when I eat it. I could imagine deconstructing that whole process and realizing, gosh, it's just some neural firing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But my subjective experience of it is I like chocolate. And you know, and therefore, since I live in my subjective experience, I do things which sort of pander to my subjective experience. Now, you know, 
one of the things I might say about things I've discovered in science is I don't necessarily like all the things I've discovered in science, right? The, the concept that, for example, the unspecialness of us as humans and so on, I don't particularly like that. It's just I, you know, I sort of pride myself on being a, a decent scientist. And so, you know, I discover these things and that's what I'm going to report, so to speak, rather than saying, well, I, you know, I'd like to hide the fact that actually there's, you know, no real purpose to the universe. We're not that special. We're not that unique, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, even though it's, it, uh, uh, for me personally, in terms of my subjective experience, yes, I'm, I'm a, a, you know, I like people. I find people interesting. I think people are sort of, uh, uh, I, I, I'm interested in people person by person, so to speak. And yes, from some, in terms of the science I've discovered, makes absolutely no sense. You know, I, a lot of things I've done are sort of, in a sense, deconstruct the meaning of things. They explain in a broader context how things work, and they show that something is not as special as we might at first assume that it is. But I don't think, you know, that this idea that that means that, uh, you know, does that affect my subjective uh, kind of uh, response to these things? Um, no, I suppose I could whip myself up into the kind of frenzy where I would say, you know, I don't care about anything. It's all just computation all the way down. But that is not my sort of human subjective reaction. That is what I've discovered in science and what I report, you know, as being a good scientist, so to speak. Um, but it almost you know, sounds like you're yeah. agreeing with me there. You're saying uh, this is like, a useful model to understand the universe, but I'm not going to live that way. I'm going to live as if people are special. I've never known you to get emotionally attached to a hurricane. Right. You do get emotionally attached to people. And so you live as if people are special. You know, living one's paradigm is really hard. You know, I'm always curious when I see, um, you know, people who've discovered things about the world and you ask, do they in fact live that paradigm? And, um, you know, sometimes they do, and it leads them into terrible trouble because that paradigm, uh, and and often they don't. You know, it's like I think isn't there a quote from uh, Tolstoy about how I'm not a very good Tolstoyan? Uh, sort of a uh, you know when you when you see fields develop, intellectual fields develop, it's sort of a funny thing that you know there's a generation that invents the field, and then there are generations that come after. The generation that invents the field still knows all the things that are wrong, all the foundational things that they're not really sure about. And so they're a bit more tentative about it. By the time you're at, you know, the fourth generation, they're like, well, of course it works that way. You know, we have this whole culture built up around this is the way things work. Now, it's certainly true that one could imagine, you know, you asked about, uh, you know, religion early on here. You know, it's certainly true one could take the things I've done in science and one could build something that many people would think of as being sort of a religion-like set of beliefs around it. Um, and those, those beliefs would be very cold in many ways. They'd be very, you know, non-human. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, in terms of my subjective way I lead my life, that wouldn't be natural to me. And um, that doesn't mean that I don't think that these things are scientifically correct. It's just a question of, you know, just like, 
you know, I like eating chocolate, but I, it's not that there's something scientifically amazing about, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the chocolate molecule or whatever. It's just that the way that, uh, you know, actually, I, I think that, um, let me, let me roll this back a little bit because I think there's a, there's a, you know, one of the things that does come out of the science I've done is the following observation. You know, you might think that what's special about where we are as humans is, you know, we're the only intelligent things in the universe and that that's what's special about us. And we should be very proud of that attribute. But, you know, what the science that I've discovered shows is that that, that is not, you know, if that's what we're proud about, then we kind of are barking up the wrong tree. That's not, that's not the thing that is special about us. But the thing that is special about us is lots of details. In other words, what this idea of computational irreducibility implies, it's sort of the, the notion that in order to know what happens in a system, you kind of just have to trace through what the system actually does. You can't go and just look at the system and say, okay, I can jump ahead and tell you what's going to happen in a million years. And you know, so it is with human society, that if there wasn't computational irreducibility, we could say, oh, look at human society, people are running around doing this and this and this, but the outcome is going to be blah. There's no reason for these people to be going around and doing all these human things. It's really just all a waste of time. And uh, uh, you know, in the end, the answer is 42 or whatever. Okay? Um, but what computational irreducibility implies is that that's not the case, that actually the, the, you know, it, kind of, it kind of affirms the that something is achieved by kind of the human experience. That is, that it's not the case that you can just take the, you know, the universe that we live in and say, okay, the outcome is going to be this. It's like the actual, uh, the, you know, the living of life, so to speak, um, is the story. It's not that this is just, you know, a, a piece of a calculation where the answer is going to be 42, so to speak. If that makes so, what I'm saying is that I think that, in a sense, the the science that I've done, you know, you might say it says it's all pointless, in the sense that there's nothing special at the level of thinking about there's no there's no there's no big special thing. Like it's not that we are the only mind-like things in the universe, but what it's saying is there is a special thing, and the special thing is all of our details. And I think at some level, actually, I'm going, to, I'm going to disagree with myself and you here because I'm going to say that I think that, that point, as you really start to internalize that point, that you know, the, the details of what happens you know, are the things that we should, that are special about us and that we should sort of think are important, that actually is a rather... Uh, sort of human human oriented view of things quite different from the sort of cold view of you know it's all just computation everything is computation yes that's true but what what is relevant to us is the special computation that is us and that's something where we can kind of revel in the details of that even though we know that the whole phenomenon of computation is not there's nothing abstractly special about it it's but it's 
it's you know it's something that is um uh yeah i i find that unsatisfying candidly because you could beavers could say that too they could say it's it's the experiences that all the all of us beavers have building our dams that make us special and a yep. hurricane could say that it could say it's all the Absolutely. places I, I went and and so it, you know everybody doesn't get a map why do you There's say that i mean way to say that nothing is special but you see but the point is that that you know i and you we're all you know members of this you know collection of humans and it is it you know i think it's i think it is correct that if you look at you know the beavers the whales the dolphins the the storms and so on there is some sense in which you know each one of those is special we just don't happen to be one of those we happen to be you know humans and so i think it's it's um i don't think you can say in this sort of uh i think it's very it's 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 funny in in the modern world where people are so concerned about sort of equality of various kinds this is a form of equality that people haven't yet sort of started thinking about that is you know who are we to say that we should be intrinsically any more special than the weather or than the beavers so to speak and i think that what the science is saying is we're actually not any more special but that doesn't mean that in the conduct of our lives as humans that we shouldn't view what's going on around us as humans as being something special it's just that we can't you know it is a it's an almost sort of religious claim that we would be we would be more special than anything else the science says and and people have imagined that the science would say no 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 we're genuinely special we're much more special than anything else my conclusion from the science is that's not the case and for example it makes me worry less about oh my gosh what happens when the extraterrestrials arrive you know i i it could be the case that i could have a big inferiority complex we could all have that you know all the stuff we've done all these things we've figured out and you know etc 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 it's all for nothing because those guys over there in alpha centauri you know they figured this out you know 100 million years ago or a billion years ago or whatever right so there's nothing there's nothing that we could possibly have achieved but i think i've become a lot less concerned about that i've i've become a lot less become a lot more interested in a sense in leading my life and trying to figure stuff out and you know trying to find it's like i could say well what's the point of trying to find the fundamental theory of physics after all you know some entity in the universe has surely already found that you know i'm going to be scooped by whatever but i don't feel that way actually i f- i feel you know uh, in a sense by knowing that in some sense yes in 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 some senses of the word because it's not even clear what you mean by figuring out i mean like figuring out the fundamental theory of physics is a little bit like saying you know like making claims about how you know columbus discovered america so to speak america was already there um you know it was like he just made the link between you know europe and and america and so similarly the universe is already there it's just what we're doing by discovering the fundamental theory of physics is making a link between our human experience and what what exists in the universe well i'll only say one more thing along this cuz my list of questions is so long but um what you said earlier about people not living their paradigm so i believe people are special 
I have a teleological view of humanity that there's a that that we're heading in a direction, and um, and because of that, I believe in things like human rights. That's why there are such things where there aren't chair rights, uh, there aren't storm rights. It's because of the specialness of humans, and I live that paradigm. Now, I'm imperfect in so many ways, but just with regards to this very narrow thing, I live my life as if people uh, are unique. And see, that's my point is, you seem to live in my paradigm as well. I, oh, I yes, see you I do. Person. Yes, I do. And so so I, mean, I have to believe you really believe it as well. Okay, the, the, let, let me ask you this question then. So you probably believe in some level of animal rights as well. Correct. And to what extent do you believe in AI rights? Um, in, in theory or um, in, in, in practice, I think that if anything can feel pain, it, has, it, it, it gets rights. All right. So do, what, how do you feel about switching off your computer? I have no reason to believe my computer feels pain. And so it's... I, I, think, I think this idea of feeling pain is a bit circular. I mean, but, but let's, not, let's not try going... <laughs> let's not try dissecting that one. But you see, it's that sort of statement. You know what pain is. You avoid pain. You don't want to feel pain. And yet you have to say, well, there's really no such thing as pain. It's just computation. No, I, I understand. But the, the thing is... The subjective experience that one has is the real thing for one. But that doesn't mean that, I mean, it is a sad fact that, I don't know if it's sad or not, but it, it's a, it's, you know, subjective experience, which is what you live in, in living your life, is not the same as objective reality. That is, you can have, it can be the case that you know perfectly well that, um, I don't know, some, something about the universe or something about the, the, the paths of human lives. You know, you know, but, but yet you can act in, in your subjective experience. You know, you're sort of locally optimizing your subjective experience in a way that is completely oblivious to this sort of global you know, objective reality. And I think that's, that's what one has to do because I think otherwise, you know, so, so another way to think about it, I, I, I okay, so let me make a, a, a general statement. I mean, my, it is your, your sort of um, allegations about my lack of paradigm living. I, I have this, you know, I, I do think about this from time to time and I have a gut feeling that that it's not as far away as you think. That is, that um, uh, you know, for example, my and I, and I I don't know whether I really parsed it apart properly. I mean, one of the things I find peculiar in my life is that I look at stuff I've done, and I say, and then years later I realize, oh, that's why I was able to do that, or that's why I figured that out. Like, for example, I'll give you an example. You know, I was. Early in life, I was a physicist, and you know, physicists typically work in the following way. They say, let's look at the natural world as it is. Let's try and sort of drill down and find out what the primitives inside that natural world are, and let's do it in this sort of reductionist-type way. Okay? So one of the things that you know, I did early on when I started studying cellular automata, and that eventually led to a new kind of science, was I said, let's just start inventing universes and see how they work and then see whether they have a correspondence to our actual universe. And so, you know, it was only years later that I realized why I had the intuition 
that that would be a reasonable thing to do? And the answer is, I started doing that after I had invented my first computer language. And you know, when you invent a computer language, what you're doing is you're essentially making up this artificial universe and then seeing how it plays out. And that's, you know, I didn't have that, the fact that I ended up having that slightly different intuition from the intuition that, you know, your average physicist would have about how to do science was a consequence of that. And I feel like a bunch of the things that I do, and I, it, it's, uh, it's interesting and I can't, you know, do it in real time, but I have this suspicion that a bunch of the things that I do make more sense than you'd think they make, so to speak, or, the, or than I can see that they make right now. That is, that there's more connection between the things that I believe scientifically and the way that I lead my life than, than sort of superficially appears to be the case. Although I'm not claiming, uh, it's not a causal relationship, as in the fact that uh, I lead my life the way that I do is not a causal, you know, is not a consequence of some scientific belief that I have. Just like, you know, when I, when I run my company, you know, you might think, oh gosh, I must be using all kinds of analytical methods and so on that are derived from science that I've done. Well, no, I, I'm not. I actually am quite a, um, uh, you know, I'm a kind of a gut thinking type type person when it comes to those kinds of things. But I have the suspicion that there's more correlation than one is immediately recognizing because there's certainly, you know, just like you, I have certain sort of outlier tendencies, maybe different outliers from yours. Um, and I have a suspicion that these outlier tendencies are more correlated than one might think. I just don't yet, I haven't yet sort of gone back and understood the history well enough and the themes well enough to see how those, how those different tendencies are correlated. But I'm, I'm uh, uh, superficially, uh, you know, your, your allegation of, of lack of paradigm living appears correct. My gut feeling is it's not as correct as one thinks it is. But I can't prove that in real time. Fair enough. What is your explanation for the Fermi paradox? Uh, there's lots of intelligence out there. We just don't recognize it. It's not commensurate with our way of understanding things. I mean, this is, let me, let me sort of give a parable version of that. I mean, I got involved in, uh, my friend Nova Spivak's kind of uh, peculiar project to send little beacons expressing the achievements of our civilization out into space. And one of them uh, was on this Israeli spacecraft that um, uh, encountered the moon in April, I guess, uh, which we thought had been like smashed to pieces when the thing ran into the moon at, what, 2,000 kilometers an hour. Um, but actually, it's now clear, although I still haven't really written this up, but it's now clear that the thing had a sufficiently grazing impact on the moon that it bounced, and probably the, the payload is, is actually just fine and sitting somewhere, you know, happily sitting on the moon. Okay, the question is, what on earth is in that payload? And if the extraterrestrials show up, you know, will they understand what's there? And what could conceivably be there that would be understandable, in quotes, to the extraterrestrials as sort of a beacon of the achievements of our civilization. And what you start realizing as you start trying to unpack that is it's a philosophically doomed concept. In other words, this idea that there's a, a, um, a sort of a way of expressing the achievements of our civilization. And again, you know, you'll, you'll, um, you'll criticize the fact that um, uh, here I am trying to produce kind of uh, works of, of, um, 
of kind of um, uh, of some kind of permanence, and yet saying, uh, you know, it's it's so I, like I was I, I said in in some uh, thing that I wrote about um, uh, the project to put beacons into out into the universe. I was I was saying, you know, if it was a if it was a prospectus like for an IPO and it had a risk section in the prospectus, that they might as well run that that poem of Shelley's about you know Ozymandias, you know, I am the king of kings. Uh, look on my works, ye mighty, and despair, and it's this uh, broken statue somewhere in a desert, right? Um, and uh, that that would be the you know the appropriate risks section. But but basically, my point of view about the the Fermi paradox is yeah, there's there's plenty of intelligence in the universe. You know, it it's um it is in the form of things that we might say, oh, that's just physics, and in fact. It's even sort of sobering to think about the distant future of our own civilization and what aspects of that are likely to be sort of recognizable, uh, you know, e even to recognizable from us today, for example. So we look back at sort of the archaeological past. We say, what were those people, you know, and we know that they were people. We find their skeletons, whatever else. What were those people thinking when they did this? Okay, well... It's all well and good because we can find skeletons and things like that. But one day, if you know it's disembodied souls in the future, as the future of our civilization, it's going to be this kind of uh, uh, very much more sort of just a bunch of bits flying around, and it's going to be very hard to know what uh, you know to, to be able to say, "Gosh, that's that's so sort of." special and intelligent and so on well actually it's just a bunch of bits flying around and to us those bits or or to us at that time so to speak those bits may seem incredibly meaningful but in the abstract sort of just sort of the abstract theory of bits there's nothing very special about them and that's what i think is the case you know i think the universe is full of intelligence, full of things that have evolved over long periods of time, maybe things that have, you know, shown lots of the features of what we consider to be life and, you know, biological evolution and civilizations and all this kind of thing. And in the end, it's, it's, a, it's all computation, so to speak. And you can't really distinguish. You can't really say, uh, and it comes back to this whole question about specialness. You can't really say, um, oh, this is, uh, and, I, and I suppose that the, the other question is, you know, we represent some zone in the space of all possible computations that could be being done. That is, you know, our civilization is this little point in the space of all possible civilizations, computations, whatever. And there is a good question about how big is that space of possible civilizations and computations and so on, and to what extent, what is the likelihood that there's a point close to us you know, is it going to be the case, like in Star Trek or something, that the that you know you go visit another planet and there are a bunch of humanoids um, with uh, you know whose only difference is they have pointy ears and so on? Um, it, it's um, uh, you know I think it is likely that the space of possible computations is is really very very vast, and that the the overlap, so to speak between things that we recognize as kind of, oh yeah, that's a sort of human-like civilization and what's out there in the world of possible computations that can happen in our universe, it's, it's likely not to be something where there is, uh, you know, where you can readily align and recognize it. So, I mean, my, my belief is there's intelligence 
all over the universe. And, uh, you know, also to your point about specialness, it's like, do we care about it? Well, we say, okay, it's very fine that these gas clouds are doing all these complicated things and physicists should go study that. But we don't go and say, gosh, that's an amazing civilization. Look at all those, the art that they produced and the whole complicated array of patterns of these, um, you know, uh, sort of streams of dust and so on. We just say, oh, it's just a physical thing. We don't, we don't care about that. I mean, it, it reminds one a little bit of, um, of some of the things that you look at in human culture where you know, even between different societies and different different times in history, different kinds of activities that people, you know, undertake, there are things where you say, oh, I don't know, like, for example, I'm not a big person watching sports, for instance. You know, I see some sporting thing on television. It's like, I have no idea what's going on. You know, I don't know why people are doing this. It looks completely pointless to me. Um, and it is something where, you know, is, is it intelligent behavior? I haven't a clue. You know, it's people running around and, and you know, uh, and, uh, stopping and screaming and this and that and the other. I have no idea what's going on. So it, it's, um, you know, I think this question about how close do you have to be to sort of uh, uh, recognize, um, you know, to be kind of really impressed with the intelligence, so to speak. Um, uh, the answer is probably quite close. And the you know the fact is the universe is, is that this sort of space of possible computational things that can happen is very big and so there isn't that much alignment that's going to happen so you don't believe uh a that you know we've been visited by aliens or or b that there's likely to be intelligent life kind of as we know it in our solar system Oh, we've been in my version of aliens. We've been we're visited all the time. We've got all these radio emissions from pulsars. We've got all these things. All kinds of things are going on. Right, right, right. But I mean, that's everybody else on the planet would mean it. Well, I, what I'm saying is, I think that the alignment of, you know, this is what I'm saying. I mean, the, the question is, in the space of all things that can happen in the universe, uh -huh. is it is it the case that, uh, you know. Have we been visited? Okay, so I have a I have a friend who has the uh, uh, the the sort of belief that actually uh, sort of derived, I think, from from some of the things that that I've said that that you know that the end point of intelligence is uh, uh, sort of data transmitted through light or electromagnetic radiation. Okay, and that in the end, and may very well happen to our species that you know maybe we'll all be. Um, uh, you know, it'll be the sort of box of a trillion souls right here on Earth. Or maybe we'll say, okay, let's just transmit everything about our, you know, it's this planet isn't going to be around forever. We want to feel proud of ourselves and want to sort of last forever. We're just going to transmit all of this information about our uh, existence uh, sort of um, to the whole universe through electromagnetic radiation, and maybe we're going to find some way which doesn't work with light as such, but but um, some way to um, uh, to get well, actually, it could work. And although it's a little bit of an ornate physics question, you know, to get sort of the interactions that can have sort of continued thinking going on in this, uh, uh, and so so then you know, then it's like okay, there's electromagnetic radiation. It's all over the universe. It is a representation of our civilization and intelligence. You say, have we been visited by things like that? Well, yeah, the answer is, you know, we've, there's electromagnetic radiation from other parts of the universe 
um, coming to us all the time, and a lot of it is um, uh, um, is kind of um, um, uh, you know, in, in my kind of view of the of computational equivalence, a lot of that is kind of as computationally and mind-like sophisticated as anything that we're doing, you know, here on Earth, so to speak. So that's a, uh, in a sense, what I'm saying is, it's like many of these science questions that seem mysterious. They end up getting answered not by a sort of frontal assault of saying, but by realizing that the question wasn't really very well formed. And that's what I think is the case when we talk about, you know, aliens and extraterrestrial intelligence and so on. It's that the, you know, what we mean by intelligence is just not a very well formed thing in that, in that construction. And what we, what we immediately assume just isn't quite right. And when we reformulate it, the answer is sort of obvious. At least you that's had, my, my current point of view. You have a new book out, Adventures of a Computational Explorer. And and it's a book of consisting primarily or exclusively of of your <clears throat> well researched blog post compiled. I want to uh -huh. read you just uh, a, a sentence or two out of it. <clears throat> so, if there's a simple rule for the universe, what might it be? I've done a lot of work on this, written quite a lot about it. One important thing to realize is that if the rule is simple, it almost inevitably won't explicitly show up from anything from ordinary. Uh huh. So. What does that mean? And second, how close are we to finding that rule? Like, are we gonna? Are you gonna do that? Are, are we gonna do that in in your lifetime, or or is there no way to know that? Because right, so I don't know the answer. I'm I'm actually finally after sort of forty years of thinking about it, I'm finally ready. Actually, really, in these times, to jump in and try and make sort of my most serious assault. On trying to find the fundamental theory of physics, and you know, my question is: Is this the right century to do it? I don't know. Um, it's not obviously not the right century to do it. I mean, the history of physics is the current fundamental theories that we have were basically invented a hundred years ago. They're basically two strands: one is general relativity, the theory of gravity, and the other is quantum field theory, the theory of kind of particle physics and small things. And the framework of those theories, you know, general relativity is from 1915, quantum field theory is from the 1920s. And they've been embellished and developed over the years, but basically the frameworks come from those times. And as I mentioned earlier, it's kind of like when you have a field that has gone through many generations, by now, people would say, well, of course, those are the frameworks. That's the only way we could possibly understand the universe. Because you know we're at generation five or something um, from for physicists, and I think that the um, uh, what I've been interested in is okay. Let's imagine throwing all of that away. Let's imagine starting from nothing. What is the most structuralist structure that we can imagine from which we might be able to build the universe? Um, and it's uh, uh, and you know, I guess that I have this experience of having gotten intuition from exploring the sort of computational universe of simple programs and discovering that you might think a simple program would only do simple things, but you'd be quite wrong about that. Simple programs can do incredibly and, in fact, maximally complicated things. And so that gives one at least the hope that maybe our universe would correspond to a simple program. And so then the question is, can we go find it? One feature of a simple program is 
you just don't get to put into that simple program things that are familiar to us. So, for example, you know, there are three dimensions of space that we commonly experience. You don't get to put a number three. If, if, if you're going to represent the whole universe as a few lines of code, the number three is very unlikely to appear in those three lines of code. Maybe the number, even if the number three occurred, you know, the muon-electron mass ratio, 206 point, whatever it is, you don't get to put that in there. You don't get to put in, you know, the fine structure constant, 1 over 137 point, whatever it is. You don't get to put in um, all these other features of physics as we know it. Basically, if you have a, a, a rule for the universe that is simple enough, all of those things have to emerge from sort of the operation of that rule. They can't be things that you say, let's stuff them into the rule to begin with. Actually, it's, it's funny because something that people point out to me with some regularity is, um, you know, Einstein in his later years, to most of the physics community, sort of was off doing old fuddy-duddy stuff of trying to invent some kind of unified field theory. Um, and uh, it is amusing that in his later years, he at least made one comment um, that is extremely aligned with the things that I'm trying to do about the fact that ultimately it will turn out that space-time is really discrete and um, uh, will, but we just don't have the tools yet, he said in the 1950s, to go further with this idea at this time. Well, now we do have the tools, but, and so, well, at least I think we have, we have tools that allow us to go further. Whether we'll get to the end, I don't know. And this is a strange project for somebody like me because, you know, most of my life, most of the things I've done are purely building. That is, you know, it's like you start from nothing, you build a big computer system, you build a computational language, you build stuff. And in a sense, what I'm doing in, when I'm building those things, is I'm building things that sort of fit into uh, the human, uh, they're things that are relevant, they sort of uh, are bridges to, to humanity, so to speak. So like when you build a computational language, what you're doing is making a bridge between sort of the abstract computational universe and the stuff that us humans happen to care about. And so this project of trying to find the fundamental theory of physics is a different kind of project. It's not, uh, at some level, it's a bridge project because at some level it's like, well, the universe just is there. And the question is, can we turn it into something that we humans can understand about it? But at another level, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a project where we're just building something. It's a project where we might happen to have the right idea about how it works or we might not. Um, and it's not something where, uh, you know, in, in any of these projects that I might do, like building a computational language, there's no sense in which the project might just outright fail. You'll build something, whether it were useful or not as useful, that's a different matter, but you'll be able to build something. And uh, in finding a fundamental theory of physics, it could just be that there isn't a way to find a fundamental theory of physics uh, I mean, we know that, okay, so first question is, is there a fundamental theory of physics? That's the first question, and that comes back to the theological questions we were talking about at the beginning. It's not self-evident that there should be a fundamental set of rules that govern the universe. It could be that the universe capriciously just does what it feels like. You know, it's full of miracles. It's full of all kinds of things. But in fact, what we have come to believe, and it is a belief, it, it, you know, in the early days, it was a theological belief, then it became a scientific belief, is that, that there are natural laws. Then the next question is, is it a theory that we are close to being able to understand? That is, 
it could be the case that uh, that it's a, a theory that is conceptually beyond what our human brains and what our civilization is capable of kind of turning into a thing that we can sort of tell as a story to ourselves. So what do I mean by that? In when, for example, in doing mathematics, we invented a series of different things. We invented, you know, mathematical notation. We invented, uh, you know, arithmetic, algebra, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Over the course of a, a millennium or so, we've invented layer upon layer of mathematics. And so if you look at sort of modern pure mathematics today, it's built on this, this sort of tower of concepts that um, uh, is um, – uh, that, that, that we've sort of gradually, as a, as a civilization, gotten to understand. I mean, it's similar to the way that we invent words in human languages. You know, in, in the idea of a, I don't know, a podcast, for example. You know, now we know what a podcast is. But back, you know, even 30 years ago, somebody would say, well, it's this thing, and it's, you know, you record it, and then you transmit it, and then whatever. And we didn't really have a way to talk about it and think about it, but eventually we have this you know, concept, a podcast and a word podcast, and then we can start reasoning about it. And it's not, you know, there's a question of whether we have kind of the, uh, the abstract apparatus to construct a theory about the universe that we humans can reason about at the current stage of the development of our civilization. And it's not obvious. Um, I think that there is a, a, the reason that I'm interested in trying to find it is that I think we've failed to look for it for many years now. And so it could be that it's quite low-hanging fruit. We just don't happen to have uh, bothered to go out and look for it. And well, so that's, to, 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 to drill down on that, you, you made the comment about Einstein saying we didn't have the equipment to do whatever. But, you know, you said you got this brainwave that tiny, simple programs could produce complex results. But Pascal also, you know, had a notion of that, right, with Pascal's triangles and all that. And I guess if you think about it, Newton, you know, he didn't have equipment, right? He's the apple falling on his head. And Einstein did uh, mainly his stuff was conceptual you know he said i saw a train go by and i wondered what would happen if you turned on a flashlight and so i'm curious to what extent do you think that th this theory if it exists and and i i suspect i mean you are you suspect that it does will require is it is it something that we could have come across a thousand years ago if somebody had just thought about it for long enough and had been the right person? Or is it something that's actually going to require equipment that will give us some key insight that we're missing now? So the thing to realize about what's happened in science and mathematics is it's built in a lot of layers. It's, a, it's sort of an inexorable thing, somewhat similar to this phenomenon of computational irreducibility that, that I've talked about in connection with sort of life in general. It's something where you know, if you say, could you sort of deliver, if you, if you went back and delivered a modern mathematician or scientist or something into, you know, ancient Greek society, um, would they sort of immediately, would people just say, aha, now I understand everything? The answer is, I think there are a few things where that would be the case, but there's an awful lot of stuff where there are towers of understanding that are quite deep that you have to have and that are, in a sense, sort of 
are things that become part of society. There are things that people sort of take for granted and experience from the earliest times in their lives that make things seem much more obvious. So I, I think, uh, you know, I, I've wondered with my things like cellular automata, you know, my, my sort of all-time favorite discovery is this complexity from simplicity in the Rule 30 cellular automaton. And I have certainly wondered, you know, for a long time, you know, will we one day dig up an archaeological artifact that is just a picture of Rule 30, right? And there's nothing about Rule 30 that appears to be conceptually require, you know, the 20th century, so to speak, to get to it. Um, but what I think does tend to happen is, yes, you know, there's, there's a big waterfront of possible things to think about. And the things people think about end up being things that somehow fit into a narrative that has been societally developed. And there just wasn't any narrative that something like Rule 30 could have fit into. And so it just, nobody thought about it because there's a big collection of things that could be thought about. Now, if you go back, for example, you know, when I published this new kind of science book, there are plenty of people who were saying, like, I just don't get it. I don't understand what the point is. I don't understand how, you know, why do we care? What, what, how does this fit into anything? Okay. Now, it turns out that in the time since I wrote that book, there's sort of been this transformation that's happened after sort of 300 years of people using mathematical equations to model things. Now, the most common way to model stuff is with programs, which is kind of what I was talking about in that book. And now it's like, well, of course people use programs to model things. Well, why wouldn't you? It's the obvious thing to do. Um, but, you know, that's not something uh, – it, it requires kind of this uh, societal context um, to make it all make sense. So, you know, I think there are uh, – for example, one, one of the things that's an interesting one, sort of a historical issue, is uh, the idea of universal computation, the idea that there are programmable com – that it is possible to make programmable computers or programmable things. You know, Leibniz almost had that idea in the late 1600s. Um, but didn't quite get it. He didn't get it crisply. You know, when Turing had that idea, well, Gödel had the idea, but he wrapped it up in so much mathematical complexity that the crispness of that idea was not at all clear from what he did. You know, Turing had the idea more, more crisply in 1936, but he also didn't know, you know, it, it, it was really, he didn't know that it was that significant. It only became significant when it sort of entrained with a lot of other things that, that sort of the civilization produced. Will we say, oh, gosh, this is the theory of the universe. That should have been obvious. You know, it should have been obvious to Newton that this is how things work. I think it's extremely unlikely that that's the way it will play out because of this phenomenon that the what is a plausible fundamental theory for physics now will be something, in a sense, extremely low level from which there has to be it's sort of many layers of emergence above that before you get to things that are recognizable to us from either our everyday experience or even the physics that we've discovered. And I think that those sort of layers of emergence necessarily involve both quite a lot of abstract work and abstract concepts and also quite a lot of actual practical computation. And I think it's it's not going to be. I would be I think I think we already know that the fruit is not so low hanging as that we can sort of uh, pick it and be embarrassed that it wasn't obvious. I think it is the case that, you know, if it turns out to be low-hanging enough that we can pick it, 
people, including myself, will kick ourselves a little bit for, well, we could have done this a few decades ago. I don't think it would have been we could have done this a few centuries ago. So artificial intelligence, you wrote in the book that uh, it's, it's going to become obviously a bigger part of our life. It's going to be something that we're going to have to grapple with. What are your do you what what do you worry about and what do you hope for with artificial intelligence do you worry about you know that it's gonna d- disrupt employment and through automation take a lot of jobs do you worry that you know we're going to automate warfare do you worry we're going to use it to invade privacy do you think we're going to use it to increase our lifespan like what are your hopes and fears at the edges of that technology well you know automation is a long story and AI is sort of just the latest episode in kind of the, the trend of automation um, and, the, and the going from the purely biological to the sort of uh, uh, the thing where we've, where we've automated it. I suppose that the, the um, uh, gosh, it's sort of a, a, um, a big topic and it relates back to a lot of these questions about kind of human purpose and the specialness of humans and so on. I mean, I think that AI is kind of a, uh, it, it allows us to sort of leverage what's possible from computation and what's possible from computation is an awful lot of stuff. And the question is, what do we choose to get from that sort of ocean of computation? And what we choose to get is things that seem purposeful to us humans to get. And so in a sense, what sort of AI is going to do is to put a stronger mirror back on us about what is it that we actually want. Because we will be able to achieve a lot more. We'll be able to, by sort of dipping into this computational ocean, we'll be able to do all kinds of stuff very automatically and so on. Then the question is, what do we actually want? And I suppose that my own sort of a large part of my life has been building our computational language and sort of one of the points of that computational language is to provide a bridge between things that humans think about and what's possible in this kind of ocean of po- computation and i think that the um uh th- th- that that will be i think the big theme of ai is so okay we can do anything what do we actually want to do and i think that it uh, it sort of puts the spotlight on sort of how we as a society think about the human condition and so on. I mean, look, I was involved recently in this question about what I was calling automated content selection businesses, companies like Facebook and Twitter and Google and so on, where they're kind of um, going through sort of billions of of uh, uh, of web pages or items or news stories or tweets or whatever that exist, and they're deciding which ones should they actually show to a particular person at a particular time. And so then the question is, okay, people say, well, let's you know get rid of hate speech, let's promote good wholesome things, or let's get people, uh, or maybe more more sort of commercially, let's you know increase engagement by um, showing things to people that they sort of want to click on and so on. Well, okay, so then the question is, what's the uh, 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 sort of, how should we define the, um, the ethics of what we're going to show? What, and, and that sort of turns into, okay, so what do we want for the world? 
and people say things like, well, I want to, you know, we want to make the world a better place. That's almost become in Silicon Valley, I think, that's like, uh, uh, you know, at, at events and things, people will say, we're doing this and this and this because we want to make the world a better place. And it kind of reminds me of, you know, religious benediction type statements. You know, that's become the benediction is to make the world a better place. Um, and uh, I think that the, um, um, but now the question is, what on earth do we mean by that? Um, and we might say, well, let's just make an AI that can figure that out. Like you show the AI the world and you say, make the world a better place. Okay, what on earth is the AI going to do? You know, it could say, well, I can simulate all of society and I can make it be the case that there are three people in the world who are happier than anybody could possibly ever be, you know, ever have been else uh, at any other time. But there's seven billion people who are kind of unhappy. Or I can make it so that there are six billion people who are really pretty happy, but sorry, a billion are going to be very unhappy. Or some other, you know, distribution of of uh, of whatever attribute, whether it's happiness, fulfillment, whatever you want to say. Um, uh, the, you know, then the question is, okay, so what do we want to do? And there's no right answer to that question. I mean, you know, in the in the world of political philosophy and ethics and so on, people have been kind of debating what one might do for thousands of years. And it's not just that they failed, but that the, there isn't a right answer. There's no kind of mathematical theorem that says this is how the world should be. Now, the only things we can say are things like, if the world is this way, then everything's going to die out. You know, it's like if you have some uh, culture where you have a principle that nobody should have any children, then it's not going to survive. Uh, but, you know, beyond things like that, I think there's little that one can say. And... Um, I think, in fact, computational irreducibility even means that one's ability to say, oh, if you do this and this and this, society is going to blow itself up, and we sh so we shouldn't do that. I think that's a hard thing to conclude. And so, anyway, I, I got interested in this question of, well, I sort of got backed into, because uh, I agreed to testify. Testify in Congress, yeah. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, what happened there was they were talking about, gosh, Let's make sure that nothing bad happens with these AI systems. Okay, so the way we're going to do that is we're going to have an inspection clause, so to speak, that says, you know, somebody can go look inside the AI system and check that it isn't doing anything bad. And I was like, no, that's not going to work. That's, you know, there are both practical reasons that's not going to work and theoretical reasons like the whole computational irreducibility business that say that's just not going to work. And so I was like... Uh, imagining I was just going to go and say, well, that's just not going to work. And I was a little embarrassed because it was like, okay, I'm going to go talk to these guys and um, uh, I'm going to be like the typical intellectual who comes and says, oh, nothing works. Um, and so I wanted to be a bit more constructive. So I started thinking, well, how could one make this work? And I realized that it's actually not that hard. And it's sort of a synergy between humans and AIs, an interesting synergy, because you know, the fundamental question is, what do humans want? And the answer is, there's no one answer to that. So somebody who says, we're going to make up, you know, the definitive, let's say, Facebook ethics that are going to be, uh, you know, that, that will govern for the whole world. And there'll be, maybe they'll have some algorithm which depends on who's looking at them. And it'll be based on, oh, well, you're in place X. So this is going to happen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There, it, it is not the case that our uh, you know, the idea that there could be such an ethics, I think, is just a wrong idea. And so, 
you know, what I realized is there's actually a way to deal with this that is very straightforward, which is to just say to people, okay, you're going to finally rank things that appear in your newsfeed or whatever, um, or things that appear in your search results. Well, you can say, um, in the end, I want some trusted entity, call it a brand, to do that ranking for me. Now, obviously, they're not going to have, you know, a collection of wise people sit down every moment and go through a million things a second deciding how they're going to get ranked. That's going to have to be represented in an AI. But the idea is that that different, effectively, brands can take responsibility for ranking, and people can expect that some brand that's a very, you know, I don't know, let's say child-friendly brand is going to try and do this kind of thing. Some brand that's very politically left-wing is going to do this kind of thing. You know, some brand that's very, uh, I don't know, intellectually oriented is going to do this kind of thing. Um, and the idea is that then, you know, in a, something like Facebook, you've got a network effect that means it doesn't make a lot of sense to say, let's just break Facebook into 20 different networks because it's just not going to work very well that way. Um, but uh, uh, what you can do is to say, let every person pick between their sort of 100 possible ranking providers which one, you know, do they want the one that is branded with, you know, I don't know, New York Times, or do they want the one that's branded with, I don't know, their favorite religious organization or their favorite celebrity or whatever else? Um, and then the question is, how do you take those brands and how do you essentially bottle up their essence, their preferences into an AI that can then be actually run in real time um, as a way to rank content um, for these services? And so I realized that the, the whole set of things that I've done with computational contracts and sort of representations, kind of symbolic computational representations of everyday discourse and so on, this is all closely tied into this question of how do you sort of bottle up uh, these, these preferences? You know, what does it mean for something to be a credible news story? Well, different people would, would differ on that. And you might just say, well, what, what has it meant to newspaper XYZ that something be a credible news story just based on what they've actually run, or what um, uh, um, what um, uh, you know what um, um, I'm reminded of a result that my my son Christopher got from looking at um, front pages of the New York Times um, uh, that um, uh, you might have thought that the news cycle was getting faster in the sense that when an event happens, like you know the 1906 San Francisco earthquake that it would stay on the front pages less time now because the news cycle is getting shot shorter. Actually, he found the opposite. He found it's getting longer. And I was talking to a friend of mine who used to be the editor of a newspaper and was asking him about this. He said, well, yeah, you know, once you have a horse that's succeeding, you want to keep running it, so to speak. My belief is that the right way to handle this is with sort of a synergy between uh, human sort of brand-like, or you might even say tribal behavior, and AI. That is, being able to sort of bottle up some some set of preferences of some group or some brand um, and uh, be able to use that as something that people can select between. I mean, people then say, oh my gosh, that will lead to you know more and more sort of echo chamber-like behavior where people only listen to things that they already knew they wanted to listen to. You know, I have to say, I think that's kind of welcome to the species type thing. I mean, personally, I would find it interesting, or at least I think I would find it interesting to like have 
some service like this that says, well, 80% of the time I'll show you stuff like the stuff that you've like seen before, but you know, 20% of the time I'll show you just this wild random stuff out of left field because I'm one of these people who happens to think, you know, happens to be curious about sort of just stuff that's out there in the world. But you know, that that's a that's just my personal sort of meta preference, so to speak. Um, but I fully recognize that other people have different ones, and I, I think this, um, in a sense, the you know this idea of mine, which I, I consider to be a a sort of simple and obvious idea, although it seems like other people have not really uh, expressed an idea like this, and possibly it's just because nobody's really actually happened to think about it, um, and it's sort of a piece of low hanging fruit in a sense. But I think that um, uh, the way I view it is, it's kind of a a, a um, a retreat from kind of um, content totalitarianism, so to speak, in the sense that rather than saying you're going to, you know, have a, a one ethics for everything, this is recognizing the fact that, uh, you know, it has worked better in human society to not have that. I mean, it could be the case that we would have long ago evolved to the point where sort of one you know, there's a where there's only one country in the world. There's only one sort of system of laws in the world. But actually, it seems to have been, so far as we can tell, it seems to have been healthy for human society, just like it seems to be healthy in biological organisms, to have some diversity of different things going on. You know, by the time it's sort of a pure mono uh, mono species, monoculture type thing, that tends to be much more fragile than something that has more diversity. But uh, uh, in any case, I've, I've, you know, in a sense, these things are far away. You know, you ask, how do these? Um, uh, it's it's sort of interesting. How do these things relate to my both personal ways to live my life paradigms and scientific kind of paradigms? And this particular kind of thing about thinking about how to deal with sort of differences in the world is something which yet again cuts across those paradigms in a sort of strange way. And I'm, I'm sort of, we'll see whether I actually end up uh, sort of doing a serious work in this area. It depends on what really happens with the dynamics of companies and, and so on. But um, uh, for me, it's sort of interesting because it's another slice, another kind of sort of paradigmatic area that um, uh, sort of... Um, uh, um, uh, addresses different kinds of questions for me than, than other ones have done. You just had your 60th birthday, and I would like to invite you for an interview on September 9th of 2029. And I would ask you, what do you expect uh, these, what will then be the prior 10 years, what would, what would you have done? What would you have accomplished? What would you have hoped for? Like, It's hard to say. I mean, What's interesting about the stage I'm at right now is that I've worked on things, a lot of things, I, I work on things for a long time. So the things that I've done, I've you know, been working on projects for 30, 35 years and more. Um, and uh, a bunch of those projects feel like they're coming to fruition right around now. I mean, the whole sort of uh, computational intelligence, computational language thing, it feels like it's coming to fruition in the sense that I feel pretty good about where we've managed to reach in terms of sort of um, being able to encapsulate computational intelligence, being able to have a computational language that can express lots of kinds of thinking and so on. I'm feeling pretty good about that. I feel pretty good about 
the the kind of um, uh, in the trenches software engineering of being able to deliver all those capabilities to in lots of different places in the world. You know, my goal, I suppose, is to take these ideas and sort of make them ubiquitous in the sense that, you know, like in today's world, everybody expects a computer will have an operating system and a UI and things like that. I'd like to make sort of what we've built with computational intelligence and our computational language similarly ubiquitous. The dynamics of doing that are things that, frankly, I personally am not that, uh, I don't like to spend my time on. There, there are lots of dynamics about sort of business deals and um, mechanics of distributing things and so on. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm very confident that a bunch of things that I've already done uh, will be considered important and will be sort of surviving ideas and pieces of technology. Um, for me to predict exactly when they're kind of going to be uh, like, when it's going to be like, oh, everybody's doing that, everybody knows about that. It's very hard for me to predict that because that depends on things in the world that, you know, I don't know. Like, like you know, there are ideas we had, like the idea of these uh, things we call notebooks that we had 33 years ago, 32 years ago. And finally, you know, people have been using the man technology for a long time. But finally, a few years ago, it was like, oh, these are amazing. You know, everybody thinks they're so cool. That was a 28-year gap. And there are things I've done in, um, in science, in technology, in the way we built our computational language where I, I, it sort of feels inexorable to me that eventually these things will be important. There are also plenty of things where I say, yeah, that's amusing, but it's not going to be a surviving thing. But there's that, So it's very hard for me to predict in a 10-year span exactly which of these things are going to get to the point where it's like, oh, yeah, the world says that's wonderful. Now, you know, do I care about the world saying that's wonderful? Uh, for my ego, I don't particularly care. Uh, for what it means is possible in the world or even is possible for me to do, I do care because it's um, uh, that's uh, those are the things that you know enable all sorts of things that I think are really interesting to happen in the world when when something becomes more ubiquitous or whatever else. So you know, for me personally, I'm I'm going to try to write more. I've I've um, you know I've I've done a fair amount of writing over the last few years, um, like the things that are in this Adventures of a Computational Explorer book. Um, and uh, I feel like um, people seem to, you know, find some of what I write interesting, and I find it interesting if I look at it again. Um, and so I, I feel like I'm, I'm, um, you know, I, I should write more, and I'm hoping to write more. And I'm, I'm, um, there are a bunch of things that are, um, uh, you know, I'm a little disappointed that the world hasn't just done these without me, but. Um, uh, there are things where I'm, you know, like, like for example, being able to get people to kind of learn computational X for all possible values of the field X, so to speak, um, without having to learn sort of the details of computer science. We now have the technology through our computational language to do that, to let people not have to major in computer science just to be able to use computation in the world. And I'm kind of uh, sort of... Uh, I think I'm, it's going to fall upon me to actually, you know, write the textbook for that and so on. Um, and, you know, probably that's going to be a worthwhile exercise because it probably 
um, it will cause me to think more clearly about a bunch of things and to invent some things I wouldn't have otherwise invented. Um, it feels like a little bit more of a service task for the world than um, uh, than something that is um, uh, sort of really going out and creating new things. But but still, I think it's it's important and and going to be worthwhile. And I hope to do it. I mean, the two big projects that I'm hoping to do, in addition to more writing and things like trying to sort of define the path for computational X, the two big projects. One is make a serious assault on the fundamental theory of physics. Um, and the other is try and build this kind of symbolic discourse language to represent kind of uh, all the kinds of things that we humans tend to talk about in sort of precise symbolic computational form. Um, and, you know, these projects are definitely, uh, these are kind of century scale projects, so to speak, in the sense that, you know, the fundamental theory of physics, it's not like people haven't been thinking about that for a while. Um, this is something where, um, but I want to, you know, I've, I've been interested in it for a long time. If you'd asked me back, I don't know, 40 something years ago when I was still doing sort of physics for a living, did I think I really had a serious idea about the fundamental theory for physics? I would have said no, not particularly. You know, I'm doing physics uh, that where I'm pushing forward things based on the framework and the structure of physics that already exists. And if you say to me, well, you know, can you see how to make a truly fundamental theory? I would say, no, I don't really have any good ideas. But in the intervening years, I have had ideas which I think are, uh, you know, have the have potential. Don't know if they're right. Don't know if it's the right century to try and do it. But I want to put a certain amount of effort into that. I don't want to spend all my time doing that because I think it's a it's a thing where I might spend all my time and it's just a pure lose. Um, although I think it's probably inevitable that the sort of mathematical structures that emerge will have some ancillary value as things like string theory. If I had ancillary value from their mathematical structures, even if from the point of view of physics, they haven't necessarily gotten that far. But, um, uh, you know, and, and in terms of the symbolic discourse language, well, that's kind of a 300-year story. People, people last seriously tried to do this in the 1600s. Um, and right. I feel like... The um, uh, I feel like it's um, uh, it's time to try and do that again. And uh, uh, the main difficulty and the main reason I haven't done that for forty years since I first started thinking about it um, is I haven't had good use cases. I think now there are some use cases like computational contracts, like AI constitutions, like this AI preferences mechanism. There are use cases which help sort of give a concrete purpose to trying to do this. And so that's uh, that's something I hope to, to work on. And, you know, I have hobbies because I'm, you know, a funny thing about my life is that there are things that I do that start as hobbies and then they wind up becoming sort of real things. Like I used to do business as a hobby and then I wound up as a, you know, CEO. I used to do uh, uh, kind of... Um, uh, various sort of science things as a hobby, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I used to do kind of uh, history stuff as a hobby, and then I've ended up, you know, doing books about it and so on. So, um, you know, if if you ask, if if I try to predict based on my current hobbies, um, you know, one of my current hobbies is education, and I like, you know, we've had our summer school for the last 17 years. We've had our summer camp for high school students for the last probably six years or something, and I personally been doing the, you know, like. Uh, um, actually, 
you know, every week do, you know, little classes with um, uh, like middle school kids and so on about computational kinds of things. Well, I've had fun doing that. Now, you know, based on my past experience with hobbies, my hobbies tend to turn into real things. And, you know, I certainly toy with, you know, starting some educational uh, institutional structure. Um, although I have to say that the that the details of doing that don't appeal much to me, um, but uh, it it might end up happening. I think that you know another thing that will probably affect the the course of my next decade is um, uh, you know our company has been quite successful, which is nice, um, but uh, there are sort of things that may happen that may produce kind of um, um, uh, big bursts of success and sort of big windfalls and so on. And um, if some of those happen, then there are probably things that um, uh, it's like, okay, um, if if we have um, you know some large amount of money to burn, um, there are things that I might consider doing that I wouldn't consider doing otherwise. Um, and uh, like so going to a, Mars or something like that. Uh, well, I'm not really into going to Mars. I I was you know it's it's yeah. sad and. And interesting for me because I was looking back. One of the things I decided to do for my for my 60th birthday, I thought, how am I going to spend that day? Because um, uh, and I I was like, I can't do my standard meetings and my standard things that I normally do on that day. And so I decided I would break it into two halves. I would have half of it as a nostalgia day and half of it as a future day. And so my half that was my nostalgia day consisted of going and looking on a live stream just for fun. Um, you know, I've, I've scanned about a quarter million pages of, of documents that I produced in my life. Um, and I was just going back and looking at ones that I made when I was like 10 years old, 12 years old, things like that. Um, I'll tell you one shocking thing that I found, um, which is that when I was 12 years old, I gave a speech. And um, I was looking at this thing, and it was actually not a terrible piece of public speaking. I'd written out, written it all out. What was really shocking to me was what the topic was. The topic was basically AI ethics. Huh. And it was interesting because some of what I said I still agree with, some of what I said I don't agree with. Um, but uh, it was just so bizarre to me that when I was, you know, 12 years old, that was the topic that, um, you know, they ended up giving the speech about. I, I also found, um, I found all kinds of strange things. I found a little essay that I wrote about about climate change when I was 10 years old. That was kind of bizarre. I had no idea that in 1970, anybody, let alone me, was thinking about that. But one thing I've noticed about you is, on the one hand, you're a really patient guy. You, you were big about teaching, and uh, people ask you very basic questions, and you answer them enthusiastically. You really try to meet people where they are. And then other times you express like vitriol towards incompetent people that you, especially that you meet in, in business, like that you're just angry at because of their gross incompetence. And I'm wondering like who gets in column A and who's relegated to column B in, in, in that lineup? Huh. Interesting question. I mean, I think, you know, it's funny because in my you know, a lot of my life has been about trying to actually get things to happen. And there are situations in which I am sort of locked into getting something to happen. When I'm in that state and something 
you know, gets in the way and there's some horrible incompetence and so on, then yeah, I push really hard to get something to happen. But when I'm like, I don't know, talking to some kid and trying to explain something, it's not like I'm trying to get something to happen. I'm just kind of living in that moment, so to speak. And I think that's, I think that's sort of the distinction. There's a kind of, I, you know, at some moment I lock in and it's like, I'm going to try and get something to happen. And then, then it's kind of, uh, you know, what I've discovered is that it's actually pretty hard to get things to happen in the world. You know, I've built, you know, a, a, a great company and structure for getting things to happen. I, you know, I've, I've, uh, you know, I've, I've gotten to the point where, you know, I've uh, kind of well connected in the world and so on, but it's still uh, pretty hard to actually get things to happen. And the only way to get things to happen is to push pretty hard. And I think that the, um, uh, you know, when I'm in the get things to happen phase mode, um, yeah, I, I, I push pretty hard. I- There's a far side comic strip and it's got this guy, he's sitting on an overstuffed couch that's busted open and you know he, he's wearing a t-shirt and he's eating a chili dog and there's like a single light bulb burning above him and he's watching tv and the caption is giorgio armani at home okay. and i wonder I, I i wonder about you like do you do anything that's mindless like do you watch cat videos on youtube or is because your whole life and when i read this book it all seems about finding efficiency and and doing things and getting things done and and you're clearly productive beyond any scale but do you ever do anything that's absolutely just like i think i can answer this one this is one of the few questions that i can answer in a short way the answer is no in your in your um list of things that you carry with you you put hand sanitizer are you a germaphobe um, not really a phobe. I'm just a, uh, uh, I like to be practical about those things. The only thing that's interesting about that is I started doing that long, long before it was kind of widespread. And it was, um, uh, you know, just because I figure what the heck it's, it's easy. And it's one of these things where it's like, like, uh, you know, it's, it's easy to do something that improves one's quality of life. So why not do it? If it was really hard to do, I wouldn't do it, but it's easy, and so I do it. You know, I, I want to come back to your question about mindless activities. I, I just tell a silly story about myself. So the, um, uh, it is really rare that I'm not sort of, uh, uh, you know, engaged in something that is um, um, – uh, it's, it's very rare that I'm kind of just hanging and th- even just hanging and thinking. Um, and to tell a story sort of against myself, I, I was um, a few years ago, I happened to end up getting some MRI, right? And so there's one of these cases where you're lying in this MRI machine and, um, uh, and you really can't do anything except just be there. And so I was realizing this was an incredibly rare event for me, that usually I'm talking to somebody, I'm typing on a computer, uh, you know, I'm, I'm somehow connected to some sort of means of output or something. Um, and uh, so I spent um, the, I, I realized, what on earth am I going to do? So I tried to, I, I was uh, started trying to compute from first principles, various things, you know, the MRI machines, the big ones go, you know, thunk, thunk, thunk. And they have, um, and I was 
trying to compute various characteristics of the MRI machine and trying to see whether I could reproduce. Um, and I finally, I just managed to get there from, you know, from Bohr magnetons and, you know, trying to work out, you know, and remembering values of Planck's constant and all this kind of stuff. I just managed to figure it out what, what um, you know, what the frequency should be and the MRI was done. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, Byron Reese hosts another podcast about AI called the AI Minute. Every day, it's a minute or two of daily reflections about AI. It's available wherever you find your podcast of choice. And in addition, it's an Alexa skill. So it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.